Hey, it's Akshat, host of Zero. I want to tell you about a new podcast and video series called The Deal, co-hosted by Yankees legend Alex Rodriguez. Every week, Alex and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with big-time athletes, entertainers, and executives. The Deal takes you behind the scenes into the world of sports, media, and entertainment and dives into the wins, losses, and lessons learned along the way. From Bloomberg Podcasts, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch on Bloomberg TV and Bloomberg Originals on YouTube. Welcome to Zero. I am Akshat Rati. Today, funding, flooding, and floating. Three years after the Paris Agreement was signed, then-United Nations Chief Ban Ki-moon saw there was progress on commitments to cut emissions, but almost none on adapting to climate impacts. Today, close to 4 billion people live in environments that are highly vulnerable to climate change. And so, Ban Ki-moon, alongside other world leaders, created the Global Commission on Adaptation to promote solutions and figure out how much it might cost. The answer is, around $2 trillion by 2030. It's hard to move that kind of money without a big plan. So after they had the figure, Ban Ki-moon and his colleagues created another initiative, the Global Center for Adaptation, to act as a solutions broker and to figure out how to finance adaptation projects. Now, I've said the word adaptation a lot, but what does it mean? If you talk about climate adaptation, people really get very tired very quickly because it's very abstract. But it's also, it's about people. It's about a small hole of farmer using drought tolerant crops. It is about a mother in, let's say, Bangladesh, taking her family to a cyclone shelter. It's very concrete stuff. This is Patrick Furkuyen, the head of the Global Center for Adaptation, and my guest today. While climate adaptation might seem vague, it is easy to visualize. Flood defenses, cooling shelters, heat-resilient crops. The problem is the financial system we have today is not funding it. All that might start to change, especially if negotiators at COP28 agree on a global goal for adaptation. The hope is it would specify the kinds of investments needed to be prioritized, giving a strong signal to the financial industry to finally start to fund them. I spoke with Patrick at COP28 about how he is trying to close that funding gap, how that money is being used, and the future of climate migration. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. When it comes to climate change, there are many, many issues to try and tackle. The biggest and the one that most people talk about is reducing emissions because that will allow warming to stop eventually and maybe if you pull CO2 back from the air, even reverse it. But in the intervening period, we're already at 1.3 degrees Celsius of warming and there's a bunch of warming that we've kind of baked in, which means climate impacts are already worse and they will continue to get worse. So a second pillar of trying to tackle climate change is to actually adapt to the warming that we've already put into the atmosphere. But we don't talk about adaptation as much on a global stage 
as we need to. Why is that? That's exactly right, because adaptation was positioned in the Paris Agreement in 2015 as the second pillar as part of the climate agreement. We have to adapt already today, and we are adapting already today. But unfortunately, that adaptation in action is not at the scale which is required, it's also at the speed which is required. That is why five years ago, Ban Ki-moon, Bill Gates, and Kristalina Georgieva, the head of the IMF, they came together and said, well, we have to elevate the political heat on climate adaptation. And they launched a so-called Global Commission on Adaptation. They said, well, if the world were to invest in five key areas, um, um, early warning systems, uh, climate smart agriculture, resilient infrastructure, mangrove restoration, sustainable water management, if the world were to invest in these five critical areas and would mobilize $1.7 trillion between 2018 and 2030, the net economic benefit would be in the order of $7 trillion. So what these leaders try to do is basically change the narrative. Because you asked, why is adaptation not front and center? Because it's seen as a sunk cost and not as an investment, and that's wrong. By not investing in adaptation, we are missing economic opportunities at scale. How are we doing with the $1.7 trillion climate adaptation goal by 2030? We are moving forward, but not fast enough and not at the scale required. Basically, what we see uh, compared to 2018 is that the adaptation finance gap is growing. So if I would give it a scorecard, I would say it's a failing scorecard. That is the backdrop of this Dubai Climate Summit, and it has to be addressed, and it has to be addressed now. Can you talk through specific examples of where projects in places that require adaptation are being deployed and what they look like. Yeah, so take early warning systems. We know the facts is that half of the developing world does not have proper functioning early warning systems. We also know if you're living in the global south, the risk of you dying of a climate disaster is 15 times higher than in the global north. So one of the solutions to that sort of imbalance is to have early warning systems. Which country has been pioneering this? Well, actually, that's Bangladesh. Take 1970. In 1970, most of your listeners may know this, a massive cyclone hits Bangladesh and India. 500,000 people alone died in Bangladesh because of this incoming cyclone. What did they do since then? They had mangrove restoration, they had early warning systems, they built cyclone shelters. So fast forward, 2019, a similar type of cyclone came into Bangladesh. How many people died? In the order of 20. So if a country like Bangladesh can move forward on adaptation, certainly the rest of the world can. I was recently myself in Bangladesh, where I met with Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina, and she said, well, we are investing out of our own taxpayers' money $2 billion of financing into climate adaptation. But our investment needs on adaptation is not $2 billion, which we pay ourselves, it's $8 billion per year. So there is this massive gap of, of financing to flow into adaptation. And one of the reasons why the international community is basically coming here to Dubai is to find a way around who will pay for what. One thing that helps keep the pressure on reducing emissions very clear and persistent is because we have clear targets, right? The 1.5 goal has been translated into reaching net zero CO2 emissions by 2050 globally. 
that means every entity can contribute towards reducing those emissions. There's a way to align all the people's work towards one target. Now, adaptation, as we've just talked through, there are many, many different things that need to be done because there is going to be more rain or less rain. There's going to be rising sea levels or there's going to be too much heat or there's going to be melting of permafrost. Like there are all kinds of climate impacts that happen, all of which we need to try and figure out how to adapt to. So is there a way in which you could come up with a goal for adaptation that would be clarifying, that would allow all these minds to align just like net zero has done for mitigation? And that's precisely the homework global leaders are wrestling with here in Dubai during the climate summit, because what is expected from them is that they agree on a global goal on adaptation. So, and what will this global goal on adaptation say? Will it be something simple as it is on mitigation, i.e. a ton of CO2 reduced? No, it's not, because adaptation is inherently local and it's multifaceted. So different proposals are on the table. One sort of uh, overarching approach is it's not one goal, it's a framework, right? The negotiators from the global south came forward with a very concrete proposal and said, well, should we not agree that X billion people in the world would become climate resilient? But that's at a global level. Others would say, well, actually, that's too abstract. Should we not break it down sector by sector? We just spoke about the early warning uh, example. Should we not have a goal that say by 2027, all countries in the world should have a functioning early warning system? It's concrete, it's measurable, and it is very sort of impact oriented. Others would say, well, actually, should we also not have a goal, a specific target on finance? Two years ago in, in Glasgow, the world agreed to double adaptation finance from the base level, $20 billion to $40 billion by 2025. But we know, of course, that that number, 40 billion, is quite frankly a tokenistic number because the needs, the investment needs on adaptation in the global south alone is close to $400 billion a year. So there is all things to play for during this summit. This global goal on adaptation will help us to make the world accountable. Just in your own understanding of where things stand right now. Where do you think we will end up with the global goal on adaptation? Yeah, so I, global goals on adaptation? Yeah, as it yeah so, so I would say there will be a global framework on adaptation. So I'm optimistic about that. There will be a common understanding of where the world needs to head towards. So that, let's say, the annual uh, reporting can also be sort of accountable against a particular agreed framework. But I would think even more important than a framework, or in addition to the framework, the world, and particularly countries, need concrete plans. They need to see, these are my priority investments, this is what the financing which I will put on the table, this is what I need from the private sector, this is what I need from the international finance institutions. It is very important that we move forward with concrete initiatives where financing is flowing. Why? Because at the end of the day, that's the only growth story of the 21st century, particularly for Africa. One reason why adaptation does not get talked about as much as well is because the warmer the planet gets, the need for adaptation changes. So what you're doing right now for certain things at 1.2, 1.4 degrees Celsius may be not 
good enough when you're at 1.5 or 1.7 degrees Celsius. So what do you do to deal with that problem where you've invested a bunch of money in a, an adaptation solution that seems to be working for now and for the near future, but then we go past a warming threshold? Yeah, so, so I think that's a very, very important example indeed, because lots of infrastructure in the world still is yet to be built. So I think it's important to take into consideration which climate reality are we actually building against? So that's why we as an organization, we're working with the African Development Bank, with the World Bank, Asian Development Bank, with the IMF, when they sort of uh, operationalize infrastructure investments to make sure that climate risks are mainstreamed into their design. Different models are taken into a place. How um, uh, high should this highway be in a 1.2 degree world? What, what would be the sort of the, the, the extra height you need to build in in a 1.5 degree world? What are the sort of the, the nature-based solution which you can put into place to, to address these additional climate risks? That's quite complex modeling, obviously, which needs to take into place. But the fact is, many developments to date are not taking into account these sort of these variations of climate risk. And that's exactly why climate adaptation is essentially about doing development differently by mainstreaming climate risk. And that's a very mundane and easy way to say, but in reality, lots of development finance is not taking this into account. Yeah, so and that's in, a missed opportunity. So in a way, there's just a lot of low hanging fruit given people don't even think about adaptation that could be used and enable more climate resilient infrastructure being built right now. And if I may want to add this, the World Bank recently came out with a report. So actually, if we build an infrastructure, traditional infrastructure, it costs X. But if we were to build in resilient infrastructure, right, to use in terms of defending against these climate risks, additional cost, indeed, 3%, would be 3% more expensive. But what is the economic return on that extra dollar, pound, or euro invested? It's a ratio of one to four. So it's smart economics. So what I find quite uh, intriguing is that it's also about narrative, right? If you talk about climate adaptation, people really get very tired very quickly because it's very abstract, but it's about people. It's about a smallholder farmer using drought tolerant crops. It is about a mother in, let's say Bangladesh, taking her family to a cyclone shelter. It's very concrete stuff. And I think that people-centered focus gets lost also a point which I think is important, what you see now, particularly in Europe, is this sort of this swing to the right, right? I mean, you see the election results in, in the Netherlands, you saw it before in Sweden, and you see it in, in Italy. What will it do to the climate debate writ large? In, in particular, what will it do to the poor cousin of the climate debate, climate adaptation? Would it be expected that a country like the Netherlands, which is built on climate adaptation, suddenly drop its investments, say in Africa, say in South Asia, say in the Caribbean, that will be very unwise. Because the issues and the challenges in Africa on climate change will not stay. If you want to address migration um, in Europe, you can invest a lot of walls <laughs> around Europe, but it's also a very important investment to address in the drivers of this migration. Obviously, not everything is climate-induced, but it is one of the factors. So that's my call also to the right-wing movements, which are basically mushrooming in, in large parts of the world. And so a lot of those solutions that need to be deployed in the Global South to be able to deal with those problems require money. And let's talk about money. 
According to your latest climate finance report, only 5% of global climate finance was invested in adaptation in 2122. That's about $63 billion. Your latest report says the funding gap is between $130 and $400 billion by 2030. Per year. Per year. What do you see as the best way to try and increase the money that goes towards adaptation? Yeah, so taking into account the reality in Ukraine, development finance going down, the cost of living crisis in the West going up in the rest of the world as well, given the exchange rate depreciation, particularly in the global South, given the debt crisis, 60% of developing nations are in debt distress. Against that background, it's not realistic to assume that international public finance will be the solver bullet. So where is that money need to come from? Well, there is a host of sort of sources. First and foremost, I would think, it's also the public expenditure in the home country itself. I just gave the example of Bangladesh. It's investing $2 billion of their own taxpayers' money. We need to make sure that that $2 billion is spent wisely on the top priorities in that particular country. Secondly, what is also vital is where is the private sector in all of this? But they're largely absent in the adaptation space because The return on investment is not always straightforward. If you build a dike, it has clear sort of livelihood benefits, but the financial returns is not always there. On the other hand, there are opportunities in the adaptation space writ and large. Say I'm a seed company, and if I were to bring to the market drought-tolerant seeds, there is a market to be gained there. Let's go back to Africa because it is the most vulnerable continent. How much finance is flowing from the global north to Africa to date? It's $11 billion a year. How much is needed on an annual basis? If you just look at the national determined contribution, the national adaptation plan, if you just add everything up, how much is that? $51 billion. So already for Africa alone, it's a $40 billion gap per year. And we will think, well, actually, that is a lot. And it is a lot. But think about the economic benefits, which we don't capture by investing in this. Think about the migration impacts, which will result from this if we don't invest in this. Yeah. So that cost of action vis-a-vis the cost of inaction, I think that is why it's so important that we don't leave the climate adaptation debate and agenda to environment ministers alone. They're good people, nothing wrong with them, but the finance community needs to come around this agenda. After the break, we hear more about local solutions and the People's Adaptation Plan. Hey, it's Akshat, host of Zero. I want to tell you about a new podcast and video series called The Deal, co-hosted by Yankees legend Alex Rodriguez. Every week, Alex and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with big-time athletes, entertainers, and executives. The Deal takes you behind the scenes into the world of sports, media, and entertainment, and dives into the wins, losses, and lessons learned along the way. From Bloomberg Podcasts, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch on Bloomberg TV and Bloomberg Originals on YouTube. So one way in which we've been trying to understand climate finance is 
if you just split it into three types of money. One where if you invest, you can make profits. And so it is where the private sector should be taking the lead, should be jumping up and down to try and make that money. But then there's the middle bucket, which is where it's not yet clear whether you can make a profit from it. But from a government perspective, it's absolutely clear that there is an economic benefit, like building a dike, like building a flood barrier. For that, governments should be able to borrow money in the form of bonds or debt or some instrument, invest now so that they don't have to then end up paying a lot more money to deal with the impacts in the future. That requires governments to have the ability to borrow money, which, as you talked about, is a problem right now because the world's going through a debt crisis, especially in emerging economies, developing countries. Are there specific ways in which that gap can be addressed, yeah. where developing countries can be allowed to borrow for adaptation finance. Yeah. So there are these very interesting sort of innovative mechanisms which are basically coming up right now. Take Senegal. Uh, West Africa, President Macky Sall uh, put forward a, a deal with the IMF, right, around the so-called RSF, another acronym, Resilient Sustainability Facility. So the IMF said, well, we know that your economy, Senegal, is vulnerable to climate shocks, and that vulnerability of your economy will eventually translate into financial risk. So what if we, IMF, support you, Senegal, in mainstreaming climate risk into your economic planning? With other words, if you invest um, your, uh, your public expenditures on particular sectors, whether it's transport, whether it's agriculture, take climate risk into account. At the same time, uh, in return, Senegal said, well, that's good. Uh, so they received $300 million in terms of credit from the IMF to mainstream climate risk into their public expenditure process, which is great. But separately, President Macky Sall said, well, we want to do more. We have lots of debt and our debt is increasing. What if we were to find an agreement with, say, bilateral creditors, Germany, France, China, we say, you know what, you cancel our debt, and in return of that debt cancellation, we invest that in climate adaptation efforts, this sort of debt for climate swaps. So that's a, an arena, a, let's say a frontier area where the world should enter into. It's not just about, oh, taxpayers in the global north need to pay for climate adaptation in the global south. That's a way too simplistic way. There are different ways of, let's say, structuring these financial flows. And at the same time, it's not just about money. It's also about sound policies. You do need to have building codes which take into account the climate shocks, not just of today, but also of tomorrow, so that you don't build in a sort of a flood prone area and without being protected, so to say. Now, one of the leaders who uh, was crucial in enabling the Global Center on Adaptation to be formed was Kristalina Georgieva at the IMF. Um, now, IMF has something called the special drawing rights. These are just basically money, in a way, that global economies have access to. The larger the economy, the more money access they have through the IMF. And there's an idea where they can lend that 
right. on land on that. land that right to a developing country Correct. and so that developing country then is able to borrow and lend money is that being used for adaptation at all is uh, the IMF interested in having SDRs drawn into the adaptation debate yeah so the the SDR the special drawing rights is sort of this uh, this mechanism indeed to to mobilize additional financing de facto on the international capital markets and indeed Africa needs much more SDRs and have now sort of have been very focal to get more of the SDRs recycled on land and by the global north in a nutshell. So the IMF, particularly also I would dare to say, because of Kristalina Georgieva, because of her development background from the World Bank before, from the European Commission humanitarian work before, brought into the IMF's work adaptation at the center. And that's why this SDR recycling is so important. It is being used, it's being now even transferred through institutions such as the African Development Bank. I mean, the African Development Bank is, I would say, is setting the gold standard because they said, well, out of our overall climate finance portfolio, 65% is going to climate adaptation. So there are sort of ways in where current funding to Africa, to Asia, to the Caribbean, can be channeled in a, in a different way. It's not just new money, it's also using existing financial flows wisely. One other idea has been to try and put a levy on fossil fuel profits or on financial transactions, a very small levy uh, that would end up with billions of dollars that would be available uh, for climate finance. Is that something being talked about for adaptation specifically? So it's, it's interesting you, you say this. Let's say carbon pricing, putting a price on pollution is out there for, uh, I would say, since the early 90s. Obviously, it's currently being discussed here in, in Dubai around, well, we need to put indeed a, a levy on the oil and gas industry because that can then fund loss and damage, right? I mean, but surprisingly enough, again here, this sort of rechanneling of finance extracted from a basically a levy or a tax on, on, on carbon pollution to fund uh, adaptation specifically is a missed opportunity, but there is space also in this. I mean, it's just basically how do you utilize the revenues collected from different sources? We should talk about the Global Center on Adaptation, and I think the best way to try and understand what you're doing is to recognize that your office in the Netherlands is the world's largest floating office. Very fitting for an organization that's trying to deal with adaptation. Was that by design? It was by design. I mean, uh, what's the best way to showcase that adaptation is possible is to have being hosted in, in an office, which indeed goes up twice a day, two meters up and two meters down. So it's the largest floating office. And that's also why we were so delighted that President Ruto of Kenya said, well, actually, there is a great office in, in the Netherlands of the Global Center on Adaptation. We, Kenya, will host the Africa office in, uh, in Kenya, which will be a fully nature-based solution. It also speaks to the point that adaptation in different contexts means different things. So obviously in Kenya, it's different than in the Netherlands. Your organization was founded only in 2018. So Correct. that sort of speaks to the point where even though adaptation has been something that we should have talked about from day one, we're only starting to really focus on it in the recent years. What is it that Global Center on Adaptation is now enabling as an organization that's been created in 2018 and is trying to bring together these various strands that need to be dealt with as we try and deploy adaptation solutions? Yeah, so the Global Center on Adaptation, or GCA, to use that acronym, um, what do we do on a Monday morning? De facto, three things. 
One, we're very much focused on the political mobilization, uh, sort of turn up the heat on political leaders. But quite frankly, political leaders speaking without the analytics, without the evidence, without the case studies, without the numbers, is like sort of an emperor without clothes. So our second pillar is very much focused on analytics. Every year we issue our state and trend zone adaptation, which is basically a very concrete operational roadmap. What are the priority uh, areas? Where should you invest in? Who should invest against what sort of uh, metrics is success being measured against a particular region or a sector? But the third pillar, where we all will be just of, not just a global center on adaptation, but any organization, what are we doing on the ground? At the end of the day, that's where the rubber hits the road. So together with the African Development Bank in 2021, we launched the largest adaptation program in the world, the Africa Adaptation Acceleration Program, the AAAP, $25 billion over five years. And in the last two years, we have invested close to $7 billion in Resilient infrastructure, drought-tolerant crops, climate information systems, in youth and jobs, uh, access to finance. So it's working, it's, it's, it's moving, but again, it's not at the scale and speed which is required. There's a lot to do on adaptation, but there is an area that is even less talked about, which is there will be places that become uninhabitable, unlivable, or just disappear because sea levels rise. How do you have those conversations with the countries that will have those regions coming up or are already there? Well, we don't have to tell people the climate impacts if you live in the global south because they're living on the front line of the climate emergency today. They're living it basically in their daily lives. They're, they're moving from, say, the Marshall Islands already to, say, California uh, because there is a treaty between, between the United States and, 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 and the Marshall Islands for all sorts of other reasons. So this phenomena of sort of um, the impacts of climates basically tipping th over sort of realities to adapt to it, uh, that, that, is, that is very front and center for those who are living on the front lines today. Take, for example, another topic which we haven't addressed yet is the psychological impact. I mean, you see, say, India, uh, that there is a correlation between the level of suicide and uh, sort of the ratio of droughts of, of smallholder farmers, yes. right? I mean, that's not the only factor. Obviously, we all understand that, but there is a strong correlation in that regard. So the, sort of the, the implications at the societal uh, level, it's not just financing. Financing is important. It's not just policies. Policies are important. It is also the human, the psychological factors which need to be addressed. And so this is so this adaptation field, in my view, is so underdeveloped yet. That's why it's so important that it's really being elevated uh, at all levels. This has been an enlightening conversation and I look forward to keeping up with the topic and trying to find ways in which that gap can be filled. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening to Zero. Apart from this podcast, twice a day, we publish the Bloomberg Green Newsletter. Sign up for free at Bloomberg.com. There's a link in the show notes. You can now listen to Zero without ads. Just log into Apple Podcasts using your Bloomberg subscription. If you like this episode, please take a moment to rate or review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Share this episode with a friend or with someone who might like to work in a floating office. 
You can get in touch at zeropod at bloomberg.net. Zero's producer is Oscar Boyd and senior producer is Christine Driscoll. Our theme music is composed by Wonderly. I'm Akshat Rathi, back soon with more from COP28.